0: Welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the ONTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Philip Grindel. Philip is the CEO and founder of Diffuse. Following a 30-year career as a Metropolitan Police Specialist Detective at New Scotland Yard, Philip has become one of the UK's most trusted leaders and advisors when it comes to loan actors and fixated threats to prominent people and brands. He was instrumental in the enhanced protective security strategy that the United Kingdom members of Parliament received and engaged with the Royal and VIP Executive Committee, Ravec, as well as negotiated the close protection capability for MPs requiring additional security. Philip is also the host of the Online Bodyguard podcast and a regular contributor in the media, public speaker, and as a trainer. Philip, welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence podcast.
1: Fred, it's a a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: It's our honor to have you on, Philip. Uh, I have extraordinarily fond memories of my time running protective intelligence operations on the British royals like Princess Diana and Of course, now King Charles. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, how you got in this business.
1: Well, my introduction to it was uh, quite interesting. If if I was a uh, a detective in the Metropolitan Police, and I was uh, employed as a detective inspector, which is, I guess, a kind of equivalent to a lieutenant in the US, Um, and I was on the special operations team uh, of the Metropolitan Police, so that's kind of anything from terrorism to homicide and all the various other specialisms. And in 2016, we, uh, just as we were going into the, the big, very beginning of the Brexit discussions and debates in the UK, we had a Northern English Labour female Member of Parliament gunned down in the street. Mm, my goodness. And her name is Jo Cox, and she was a relatively new MP. She was uh, very much pro-immigration and pro-Brexit um, or pro-being part of Europe, I should say. And it came out of the blue, and um, it, it, it certainly wasn't something we were used to. Um, I mean, you know, even if I look back now since the beginning of 2000, we've had, we've had. Two members of parliament killed um, in that time and um, about half a dozen sort of seriously injured. So it, it, it wasn't something we were used to. And, you know, many of your um, listeners will, will probably remember the days of the IRA and, and those sort of times when there was a greater oh, yeah. threat. Um, but we sort of didn't realize that threat was necessarily there against our politicians in the way it was. And I was the person. Um, as the detective that was brought in by the head of national national terrorism in the UK to, um, to set up a really small team in Parliament. And my task was threefold, really. One was to uh, investigate all the abuse and the threats and the intimidation that our politicians were getting, which we were blind to at that time. Secondly, to uh, grow the intelligence picture, because, again, as I say, we... We were sort of blind to this on a national scale of what was happening, where it was happening. Very for a very, for a small country, we we, we weren't well uh, joined up. And thirdly, to stop the next attack. Um, and so, whilst I had lots of experience as a detective in, in in lots of different environments, I'd actually never even heard the term protective intelligence. It wasn't something that was well known in the UK. And certainly, when I went in and took on my job, and I and I was asked to sort of look at you know how it has happened. There was no source within the UK of, of, of expertise for me to really re- rely upon. Um, but I was fortunate in that I was doing, um, I, was, I was studying a master's degree in security management, and I decided to sort of look at this subject. And, and again, you know, it's, it's interesting how um, how the cards flow, but I, I was invited out to Harvard University to um, present on um, violence towards female politicians. And I'd been reading the research of uh, Robert Fine and others around the except, exceptional case study, uh, state exceptional case study project that the US Secret Service had written. So I contacted Robert, who lived in that part of the world, and said, you know, it was an there any chance of meeting you? And um, if you, if you, I'm sure you probably know uh, Robert Fred, but he, he's an incredibly generous man. And yeah. he gave me literally three days of his time for me to, to sort of download and and teach me all he, all he knew, certainly, but certainly really brief me on what, this, what the research said and, and what I could learn. And I spoke to others like Mario Scolari at Nebraska University and, and many other experts, pretty much all in the US, um, to really try and understand this, this science around, well, how are public figures targeted? Which I then brought back to the UK. Now, we did have it in terms of, you'll be familiar with the Fixated Threat Assessment Centre. Sure. Um, so they were looking at some of these elements, but from a very psychological perspective. But what I had to do is try and look at them from an operational perspective in, in terms of from security. Well, how do I how do I stop these attacks? And that's really where it all started. And and we were fortunate that 12 months later we 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 did have another uh, planned attack. And, and one evening I was given a note with seven lines of a threat on it, third hand. And because I'd learnt this research and because I'd studied how British politicians were attacked and there was a, a very specific methodology around it, I was able to look at this this, uh, this threat and say, yep, that, that's genuine. I could literally tick off some of the indicators and say, that's a real one. And so that we were able to stop that attack. And that really was the seed of how we started to fuse in terms of, I was coming towards the end of my career and uh, in the police and, and, and um, people were beginning to ask me then, how do you do this and can you help us? And so that's really how Diffuse started. And a real, for me, as I, I was saying beforehand, a real passion for this new subject to me of detective intelligence. Um, and certainly Ontic was was right up there with my, um, you know, my place of learning in, in this subject.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating story. I know just looking back on my career, you know, which goes back, I'm I'm sad to say now, Philip, through the 80s, uh, uh, we... We always uh, had uh, great concerns for, for example, the royals traveling here to the United States, uh, predominantly surrounded by fixated personalities here uh, and others. And of course, we also had the lingering IRA concerns, uh, which you know certainly go back to the, the 70s and the early 80s and, and some of the targeting of uh, the queen and so forth, and obviously the Lord Mountbatten which um, we always had included in our threat assessments. And what's fascinating to me, Philip, as as you unwound how you started your program after these attacks there, is as you look back on creating your protective intelligence focus, what were some of the lessons learned that looking back now, would help others in a similar situation, whether you're in the public or the private sector, trying to do the exact same thing?
1: Well, I, I think first and foremost, we're fortunate that there is such a wealth of research and expertise out there. And it certainly, you know, germinates particularly from the US, but there's, there's great work from Australia and certainly from friends now that I know in, in Europe. Um, but one of the key ones for me was this kind of hunter and howler Concept which you know you'll be familiar with around people that that make threats don't necessarily pose threats. In fact, invariably don't pose threats because at the time what was happening is you know when I first went into Parliament and we we set about encouraging politicians to report to us the issues that they were having. Our reporting went up four hundred percent. So wow. all of a sudden we were swamped with. Um, reports of abuse and threats and intimidation. And, and just to dispel some myths that, that, that people will probably jump to, you know, actually less than about 13% of that was coming on social media. The vast majority was still coming via emails and telephones and letters because in the UK, you can write to a politician. You don't have to put a stamp on it. It's free. You, you know, you're allowed to just do that. and They publish their email addresses. They publish their phone numbers. They publish everything so that so that it was very easy to email people so there was this assumption that everything was on social media that wasn't the case although there was clearly some on social media but what was happening was that we were following the noise rather than the science and so we were so focused on all this noise that we probably missed things initially and only when we started when i started learning the science and introducing it and thinking about well okay you know, all these people that are making these horrible threats don't necessarily pose a threat. But who does pose a threat? How can we how can we find that needle in a haystack? And what do you know? What do we need to learn about methodology? So, my research, for instance, identified that every politician that had been attacked, and sadly, this goes on since I'd left Parliament, where Sir David Amos was attacked and killed. Um, they've always been attacked and killed in and around the same location, which is. Um, their office or what what we in the uk call their surgeries where they meet local constituents why well because they publish it and so it becomes a place that anyone who's targeting them can predict the exact time place and location they're going to be at any at any moment in time that's the only time they can really predict that so it's kind of obvious well that's where they're going to target it and of course in the uk also if you're a local constituent so if you're so each, each member of parliament, the whole of the UK is split up into 650 of these, what's called constituents, with an MP uh, representing each one. And if, I'm a, if I'm, I've got the right to meet or to ask to meet my local MP, now if he agrees to do that, of course, I can then circumvent the security because automatically I'm invited into this surgery to have a meeting with him. And there's no search regime or anything, or it certainly wasn't. And so we know that all those MPs that have been attacked including Joe Cox and and, and, uh, uh, and Peter Amos, and what have you, they've all been attacked by an individual who's a local constituent who has an, uh, a, an issue, predominantly a grievance about an ideology. So either extreme right wing or Islamic is the kind of general thing over the last 20 years. So it's less about politician and more about where does the attacker come from? And so what that says to us is that well, all of these politicians are actually at equal risk because none of the ones that have been attacked would ever appear on a high-risk list. They, were never, they never said anything or did anything that was controversial or hold or specific uh, roles that made them more vulnerable. So it was more about the attacker. So we had to have a baseline of, well, what, where do we start protecting these people, knowing that where they're vulnerable, and how do we mitigate that threat from what's going to be probably an unknown attacker initially? So it, it, it really was about... You know, understanding the problem. And I think that's, that's certainly something that's, that's really stayed with me is around you, need, you really need to understand the issue around whatever it is you're trying to protect.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And uh, certainly words to the wise for those uh, looking to start programs or benchmark uh, their current programs in the protective intelligence space. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Antec's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. Now, looking back,
1: Philip, what mistakes were made? Well, certainly at the outset, we, we were full of the noise. That was you know without a doubt that was that was one of the mistakes i think secondly and this is perhaps not necessarily within the protective intelligence methodology or ideology but but an important factor and one that we still focus on is that even at the extremes where you ha- you're trying to stop an attack so you're trying to stop somebody getting hurt or killed even when you can do that you still have to understand that that there's this huge bulk of people who are being being threatened and damaged reputationally and psychologically. And I, you know, I, I never really understood just the impact of being, uh, of the abuse and threats and, and the constant nature of that, the impact it had on you know, what are predominantly resilient people. And again, you know, I learned differencing that, that how different men were threatened as opposed to women. You know, women are threatened in a far more personal way. The abuse and the, and the threats they get are, are so much more personal than us men get. Um, and so, you know, you, you can't, whilst you might satisfy yourself that someone's not in any physical danger, you still have to think about, well, what other harms are they vulnerable to? You know, the psychological impact, the emotional impact, which then, which then can look at what decisions are they making? How does it change their decision making? How does it change their behavior? Um, how do they they're watching them becoming paranoid and hypervigilant? They're reporting everything to you all of a sudden where there isn't actually a threat, but they're seeing a threat everywhere because, because their, their psychology, if you like, is being impacted. And of course, you know, we move into the world in the commercial environment of reputational harm. Um, so I think, I think those three things really for me were the key, bit because one of, the, one of the things that everyone was crying out for was we need more protection. And my argument was always, well, actually, and even now, in fact, actually you don't because we've got the protection there. But your greatest threat actually now is your complacency. So we've given you everything and you've got, we've, we've done a huge amount of work and a huge amount of money has been spent on this. But we now rely upon you to actually input these things and practice what we're telling you and preach what we're preaching to you in terms of the advice and the guidance. And you know, all too often, that didn't happen. And, and so we thought that they were safe. They weren't necessarily safe because they weren't doing things that we'd asked them to do but also they weren't feeling safe, even when they were safe. So, uh, so that, that, that was a real difference around, you know, you can make somebody perfectly safe, you can put them in a gilded cage and make them safe, but they don't necessarily feel safe. And if they don't feel safe, then what happens is they start reporting things that, you know, they, the, the stalker, for instance, that they might have, it can be anybody out there. So they, they, they report everything to you. So you, you know, it's, I, I really had to learn these two different sections around being safe and feeling safe. I hope that makes sense.
0: Oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. Uh, in years gone by, Philip, uh, I had the pleasure and we had the honor to protect Salman Rushdie, certainly, um, which was a very high threat at the time. It was after Satanic Versus was written. And uh, I know the. Metropolitan Police was keeping a close eye on Mr. Rushdie in the UK, and he came over to the United States for what started out to be a very discreet visit. It turned out to be a trip to the White House, and memory serves me right, the National Press Club, and very high threat for us at the time. And then you fast forward to recently, as we all know, and the world watched with horror uh, at the attack on Mr. Rushdie. Up at the Chautauqua in New York. What's your thoughts about that? Uh, when you kind of take it all in from a historical perspective,
1: it's interesting because one of my one of my closest friends, um, uh, who later became one of Tony Blair's personal protection officers, was on the first detail to look after Sama Rushdie. So I'm I'm very aware of the um, nature of protection that he had, and I think I think the lesson really is is that we can't assume a threat goes away. Some threats linger, and they're so deeply embedded in a psyche of, of people that are um, hostile to that individual that it's naive to believe they're just going to go away one day. Um, now, I don't know the details behind the attack on Salman Rush in terms of, you know, was there any particular intelligence or what was his particular security like? But it, it strikes me that I know that, you know, one of my other roles within the Metropolitan Police was what was called a counterterrorism security coordinator. So my job, if, if the Queen, uh, the rest of her soul, or other members of the royal family were attending an event, or a high-profile person was attending an event, someone like me would be called in to stop it being attacked. Um, and we would, you know, look at all the various bits and then coordinate it. And and I you know I don't know the, the details, so I, I'm I'm loath to kind of criticise um, the uh, those involved in his his protection. But I, but I don't I, mean, I wonder whether the same scrutiny was put on him more recently as it was once upon a time. Whether whether they reviewed intelligence, whether they were considered the fact that he would always remain a threat. And you know we know that looking at geopolitics as we are right now, that the Iranians. Pose as much of a threat to, to dissidents and what have you than they've ever done. So, you know, I, I often think, and I and I was called back into Parliament last year when when um, we had the next MP killed, which was David Amos, and I was asked about um, what my thoughts were there. And, and I and I remember saying that you know, and I've mentioned it previously that complacency is, is actually the greatest threat. This idea that everything's gone away and we're okay now, and and um and that we can just relax is a mistake. Now, that, that has to be balanced, obviously, on, on intelligence and on, and on historical cultures and all the other issues. But, but you know, clearly, for some times, we can't, you know, there's no reason to keep security there permanently. But in others, I think we need to understand the nature of the threat. Um, and certainly at an event where someone like Salman Rushdie was going to be, you know, I wonder what was done in the background in terms of screening of people who were coming in or, or, um, uh, any search processes, et cetera. So I, I think, you know, that's my kind of overriding thought is around this, this term about complacency.
0: Yeah. And that certainly resonates, uh, across our whole industry and, and very much with me, Philip, uh, in our dignitary protection division, back in the day, we had a, Wonderful quote by uh, the tremendous thriller writer Frederick Forsyth from his book uh, *The Day of the Jackal*, uh, which begins with "you know all men have bodyguards" and and so certainly complacency can kill. And uh, I would venture to guess it's probably been a long time than before anybody had done any kind of updated threat assessment, uh, but uh, on that specific case, but. Now, as the CEO of Diffuse, exactly what do you do now?
1: So, we use protective intelligence and behavioral science to solve the problems that our clients face with unwanted attention, unwanted approaches, and problematic people. And so, what I like to think that is, is, is taking a very white glove, spoke look at our clients who are concerned about their own safety for, for one of all sorts of different reasons and, you know, using protective intelligence and understanding that protective intelligence, but also looking then to introduce behavioral science in terms of profiling, um, which my business partner, who's Dr. Lorraine Sheridan, um, a very eminent forensic psychologist, brings to the, to the party. And, and so it's, it's a very bespoke service where we look to to help our clients, and, I, and I, I use the term very literally, to help our clients feel safer. Um, that's what we really try and do, because sometimes it's a perception, um, and sometimes they, they feel unsafe, and they want to be reassured that they are safe. Sometimes it's a lot about intelligence and around, well, let's look at how vulnerable you are online. Let's see how much of your public info or your private information is publicly available. And that can be anything. And and Fred, you know, we've done some inquiries recently or investigations recently where one of our clients, a billionaire, came to us and said, you know, can you review how vulnerable I am? And I went back to him and said, well, look, you know, I happen to know that you have a particular painting in your house, which is worth several million pounds. And I also know what room it's in. And I can arrange a buyer so that before I come into your house and take it, I've got someone to sell it to. and." Then what I can do is I can watch um, to see your yacht and your private jet because I've got the numbers of those to see when you travel abroad. So I know exactly what you've got, I know where it is, and I know when you're going to be travelling. And he said to me, "Well, how do you know all that?" And I said, "Because your daughter takes selfies, and she's taken a selfie of herself inside her home, and in the background is that picture, which I've had looked at, and I can tell you that's what the picture is." and Roughly, this is the worth of herdance. Therefore, I can find a buyer. And the plans of your house, believe it or not, are still online. So I can work out the exact route in and out to that room and, and, um, and where it is. And, of course, your daughter's got selfies also where she's got a yacht in the background or the private jet in the background. <laughs> and, uh, and therefore, I can track you. I said, so that's how simple it is to, to, for an adversary to target you. Um. And so that's the sort of work we do is we look, try to educate some of our clients around what's out there about them and how adversaries, be they lone actors, be they activists, uh, be they fixated people or otherwise, you know, that's what they will do. They'll sit there and they'll research you from, from you know, from their front room. And people have no idea what's out there about them. Um, and so, you know, we would then look to, to, to mitigate those vulnerabilities for them. Um, So that's the first piece. We look to to prevent our clients being targeted. We then work with them when they are targeted. And again, that's when the the forensics comes into it, and we will profile the people so that we really understand who they are, what their motivation is, and what threat they pose, but also how we we engage with them. You know, if they're really narcissistic, perhaps we don't engage with them. But if perhaps they've got other uh, personality types, how would we engage with them to, to make them go away? Um, and we, we, you know, we use a, a number of different methodologies to, to protect them from when it's actually happening. But then we also have a third stream, which is around education and training. And so we run education and training programs to educate those in the UK on this subject around protective security and protective intelligence and really shine open the eyes of our um, UK industry to this subject matter. And as I said to you earlier, we have our own podcast, which I, I, I've kind of copied you on if I, you know, or imitated you on in terms of getting some of the experts onto the podcast to actually talk about these subjects, because it's not a subject that's as well known in the UK as it is in the US. And so part of Fuse's purpose is to, uh, to educate um, our market here, including our clients, how to keep themselves safe.
0: Philip Grindel is the CEO and founder of Diffuse, and he is also the host of The Online Bodyguard. Philip, thank you so much for being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure, Fred. Thank you.
0: This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontech.co slash center. Again, that's ontech.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.